this oh. year. Oh. Naked and disturbed. Oh. oh, oh. See, we need to add some more. I said this to you last oh, week. Oh, yeah. We need um, to get And on then this. we're going to get Zoey's notes. I have this, but we need to add more like a like type yeah, thing. We Welcome do. to Shaken and Disturbed, everyone. I'm Darren Carp, and I'm here with and, John Thrasher. And I am here. I just have to say right up top, um, we're going to have two major announcements coming up. If you listen to our NMR, we teased this already, but some of you only listen to our Sunday's case. Next up, we have two, two big announcements. One has to do with Patreon, uh, but the other one is going to be a fun new surprise that everyone, everyone listening is actually going to enjoy. We don't want to give any hints away, and we feel like we've been teasing this kind of before, but um, (laughs) we're definitely going to drop this next week, and it's very exciting. John's been in the background doing his due diligence and magic's been on the streets, turning tricks in order to get us the resources we need to make sure that this (laughs) surprise can happen for you. So thank you, magic. Um, Before we get into this week's case though, I, I, before, uh, you know, we just recorded NMR. I had to go downstairs to get myself a little drink and not an advertisement, but I drink Celsius and which is like an energy flavored seltzer. I guess okay. it's, it's got yep. like nutrients in it. They describe it. I think <laughs> essential energy accelerates metabolism and burns body fat. But I, oh, I don't really know. Now we're really talking. Know. I don't know if it really does that. Uh, it's Free got plug. seven seven essential vitamins. Regardless, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of it, and yeah. I'm trying to drink the flavor that I like the least. And I told John as I was getting it, I was like, "This flavor is right up your alley," because we all know that he loves like some artificially like Girl Scout gingerbread cookie coffee <laughs> yes. or some shit like that. He loves yes. that. And so I was anyway, like, this... "Tell me what it's called." And the best part is, is like they have you know Oasis, and they have Ooh, like love. flavors like that. This one is. Ooh. Fantasy vibe, Love. fantasy vibe, and it is sparkling mandarin marshmallow, oh which my just God. feels like John Thrasher it's in a bottle. Like, you know, if it was like name everything you love, and I had to list them, and they turned it into a drink. This is not, by the way, like like Darren said, not an advertisement. We just are talking. No, it's about not. It. But it does have a fuck ton of vitamins in it. I'm not gonna lie. Okay, read like, some of them quickly. What are they? Seventy percent vitamin C, one hundred and thirty percent riboflavin, niacin, vitamin B six, vitamin B twelve, two hundred fifty percent. Wow, that's actually impressive. Yeah, obviously we need chromium. Well, did you even know that you needed chromium? You're getting 140 percent of chromium. chromium. In this. Isn't that what Wolverine's claws are made of? I don't know. Oh, anyway, before... you've already just killed me, so we might as well just get into this week's case. <laughs> Let's get into this week's case. I will try a Celsius this weekend. Again, not a not an advertisement, and it is a free plug for them. So if they would we like also... to advertise on our show, let us know. Uh- I hope everyone had a good Super Bowl. That's right. It's happening today. If you're listening to this when it comes out. Um, we made our predictions on NMR. Darren went off about Taylor Swift. You might want to check it out. It's really interesting. Um, okay, this week we are going from last week, Darren, we were in Australia, down under, if you oh. will. And yeah, ooh, we oh. were eating poisonous meat, potentially. Potentially Poison poisonous mushrooms. Potentially, right. yes. And this week we're headed over to jolly old England. That's right. We are setting this case in London, and it's in 1936. A woman named Mary and a guy named James Hanratty of London welcomed their firstborn son, also named James, into the world. James Sr. was in the British Army, and his children were evacuated as part of a mass child exodus when London was under attack during the 1944 bombings. I I Um, forgot to say this up top, and I don't mean to interrupt, but... um, No, please. uh, When Megan first gave us this case... Yes. I was like, this sounds so... Like, why do I know this name? I was like... I know this name and, you know, we're talking about 1936 in London, like 
very few what cases. What do you know? Be, yeah. Right. And Henry <laughs> was Tom Hanks's character in Catch Me If You Can. Oh, okay. That's an interesting and connection that's how there. I know it. I was like, Henry. Yeah. I just want to say for anyone watching the video version of the show, I'm extremely red and I don't, I'm not red in person. I don't really know what's causing it, but, um, I'm not having an allergic reaction. Even You're fine. You need some Celsius marshmallow fun is what you need. Something. Well, anyway, during this time, something. something. Anyway, during this time, uh, in the 1944 bombings, 800,000 children were transported out of the city and fostered into makeshift makeshift refugee camps in the countryside. British families would visit the camps and offer to foster the children. One family offered to take in James, but the eight-year-old boy refused to leave the camp without his young younger brother, Michael, which is like, you know, so heartbreaking and a, a sad reality of these world wars that happened uh, in this early part of that century. Now, James and his brother were eventually reunited with their family in London a decade later, James was involved in a bad accident. He fell mm. off his bike and suffered a severe head injury, remaining unconscious for 10 hours. When he finally awoke and recovered, his behavior had become rather rash and impulsive. As you can, as we've heard, that happens whenever you have a brain injury or a brain incident. I should it could say. have caused a number of different effects that you don't even think yeah. about. You know. Yeah, and shortly after the accident, he stole his family's rations book and took his little brother Michael to spend all of the vouchers on candy. You know, There's it's like something sweet about that. I know. I was just gonna say, like, it's funny, like, you know, not to be a dick, but I'm like, well, at least he wasn't like getting drugs or guns or like yeah, selling it off to like say. get a car. I was like, he took his brother to get candy in, in the nineteen. What is this now? Probably fifties. That was like the worst thing you could do at the time. That's really all you could do to do crazy things, in a sense. Nonetheless, James um, basically vanished that day. Um, it took his parents four weeks to find him, fifty miles away in Brighton, where he had found a job loading logs onto trucks for shipment. So he was just like, "I'm up and out of here. Like, I'll see you guys later." Basically, but to some extent, like that is weird. But at the same time. Right now, in the case, it doesn't really seem anything saucy. Like, he actually just left to go do work. Yeah, and he was, like, 18, 19 years old at this right, point. Right, so it feels like he's, like, productive in that way, you know? Yeah. And by the time James's parents had found him, he was far from healthy and suffering from exposure, actually. Now, remember, he had that traumatic brain injury. His family brought him to a hospital to be checked out, but the doctors were unable to find anything wrong with his brain. Again, technology was probably very limited at this point. Um... Although he was described as, quote, mentally defective during mm. an examination, James never returned to his trucking job in Brighton, instead choosing to remain near home to begin a life of crime instead. The same year, James stole a motorcycle and was let off with a warning and banned from driving. He didn't have a driver's license, so the court just couldn't even revoke it. This was the, basically their next best option. Yeah. Now, ironically, around this time, James started showing interest in joining the British Army, but failed his medical exam and was deemed unfit for service. I would imagine his traumatic brain injury played into that medical exam as well. So after this, he seemed to lean further into a life of crime and began burglarizing homes, stealing cars, committing petty theft, and acting as a getaway driver for other people that were committing crimes. Now, I just want to mention really quickly, you know, this is such a great example of like, you know, people that are trying to make a life for themselves after injury or after, or even people that aren't injured, but still have mental 
mental disabilities, you know, sometimes they are pushed into a corner. How can they survive in the world? How can they find money for food and pay the, the bills? And unfortunately, crime is sometimes the only way out for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of wonder, though, because right before. Sorry, my right before my iPad was going off right before this. Yeah. Like, granted, when his parents found him, he was far from healthy and they sent him to an institution, but at the same time, or a hospital rather, but at the same time, he was working and like loading logs. That's like, true. everything seemed yeah. to kind of be okay before then. Not to say that it wouldn't have gone haywire, but like, it wasn't like he was a menace to society. He got a job and he was like working, yeah. as far as we know. So that's what's kind of interesting. Like, I wonder if the parents kind of have something to do with this, maybe triggering him. Or- we don't have all of those details, but it is a good point. Like, you know, if he was seemingly just doing his own thing, what what did the parents need to do here exactly? Right. You know? Well, in 1955, James was caught and sent to prison where he attempted and failed to commit suicide by slashing mm. his wrists. Um, men always choose just the most gruesome form of... Mm. I, I think there's a stat I probably could be wrong about. I think we've said it before that women, I think, attempt suicide more than men, but men are more successful at it because mm. they are willing to, like shoot themselves in the head, slip right. their wrists, do things. And women are like the more brutal crime. I'll take pills and drink a bottle of vodka, which doesn't yeah. necessarily always work, but feels less painful. Sure. Well, he was released in 1957, but reoffended, was recharged <clears throat> and sent back to prison several more times, serving short stints for petty crimes. Now, 1961, 24-year-old James was tired of his perpetual lockups and decided to become a window washer. He was successful until the man he worked for went away on vacation and asked James to take care of the business while he was away. James then reconnected with an old criminal partner who helped him dye his distinctive red red hair black in preparation for returning to his old ways. I mm. wonder what keeps him on the up and up. Like, is yeah, it having yeah, to report yeah. to someone, and then when that authority figure kind of goes away, he feels lost, he feels like he's not accomplishing something, because... Or maybe when the cat's away, the mice will play type of thing, potentially. You know what I mean? Like maybe right, he sees but if an the cat's never away and he is yeah. on the on the up and up always, he's on the straight and narrow. Like Oh yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. You know, that just seems very interesting because it's usually that those types of people are always trying to sneak around and do it. It doesn't really seem like that case here, but right. I'll keep going. On August 22nd, 1961, an amorous couple was parked in a cornfield in Dorney Reach, a town about 45 minutes outside of London. The couple were 22-year-old Valerie Story and 36-year-old Michael Gregston. Michael worked as a scientist in a nearby research lab, and Valerie was his young secretary. The two were having an affair. Out. Mm. Ow. Mm-hmm. A bum bum. <laughs> See, this is where you need the 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 buttons. That's right. You need the buttons, oh, John. Oh, sorry. Yes. The, oh, thank that's you. That's the only one we have right now. Yeah. Thank, okay, we needed like an ow ow. Yeah. Now, as they were in the throes, they heard a knock at the car's window, which gives me chills. Yep, this is probably not going to end well. Let's hear what happens. There's no knock that doesn't make me freak out. Even I if know. I'm expecting someone, no. a knock D- door at dash. the door is like, right, even that. I'm like, don't Listen, knock. Like, it just, it's just, it's not a ringing of the bell. It's a knocking. I could be staring at the, the map, seeing my DoorDash driver arrive, arrive. at my home, yep. and wa- watching them walk up to my door and my ring camera and standing right next to the door. And if they knock, I'm still jumping out of my skin. I'm like, what do you want? What are you doing here? 100%. You know? It just, there's Never something about thing. it being mysterious. It's menacing. And deli- it's you know? menacing. It's menacing. <laughs> 
So Michael rolled down the window where he was yes. met with a barrel of a revolver. Ugh, yeah. Valerie heard a voice with a Cockney accent say, I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah, maybe don't do it. Just go ahead and just- This is a holdup. I'm a desperate man. I've been on the run for four months. If you do as I tell you, you will be all right. Oh, boy. The intruder got into the car and ordered Michael to begin driving around seemingly aimlessly. The whole time, he kept talking mindlessly to Michael and Valerie in what seemed to be nothing more than stream of consciousness yammering. So to me, it probably seems like he's in some sort of mental- hallucination or something's going on mentally that he doesn't seem to be altogether with it, but also outside of the gun, not necessarily dangerous, just yeah. unpredictable. Yeah. Now at around sure. 10 30 PM after about two hours of driving, Jesus, the gunman declared he was hungry, stopped at a gas station to fill up a small store to buy cigarettes and a milk vending machine, which I guess was a thing. Apparently. We're here. We, uh, I got, I'm Googling this. I'm, I'm, I'm Googling this milk. Milk vending, vending machine. I just want to see, like, is it like? Is it just straight up milk? It's just straight up milk. Yeah, I mean, I mean like you they, can vend anything if you think about it. You know, you can vend anything. Listen, this was in the fifties or so, right? Are we still in the fifties? Maybe early sixties. Yeah, where I feel like, you know, the world was experimenting on what kind of like machinery and robotics we could we could industrialize and send all over the world and. You remember this is those... back when milk was just fucking milk and not nut milk. <laughs> well, listen, I love almond milk. It's my milk of choice. So don't be hating on my almond milk, okay? I don't like dairy. But is it milk? It's a milk consistency. I mean, what is milk? You know what I mean? Let's let's talk about that someday. Dairy, to me. What, I, what is a milk? What is a milk? I could have made a horrible joke about consistency. I know, I know. I'm just going to, I'm going to let it go, John. Some people listen with their kids in the car, Darren. Be mindful of that. And then I don't want the parents to have to explain to their kid what I mean. Definitely not. Definitely not. Michael offered to give the gunman the car and all the money in his wallet to buy food, but the man seemed not to want to leave the couple, nor did he seem to have any actual plan in mind for the evening. Nothing like an uncoordinated robbery. and then doesn't this sound kind of like, you know, Dad? this is pr- well, and it's also probably part of his mental uh, defect or whatever the, the doctor said it was, because, you know, maybe he just knows he wants to rob somebody and there's some sort of end game, but maybe can't put it together about like how to make that happen. You know what I mean? I guess. Or he's lonely. Potentially. And oh, well, there's that too. That's, That's like what point. I also thought. No, the three continued driving around for another three hours, eventually hitting the A6 highway until the gunman deci- the gunman decided he wanted to take a nap. Michael tried to pull the car over a few I'm times. I'm laughing really quickly because Darren that, like, has said like, gunman his- a few times. Gunman. The gunman. The gunman. But I'm, I'm laughing because he's like, I'm going to pull over. I need some cheese doodles. Let's, doodle. so let's yeah. just like, this is, he, you know, he's, he's like, like, I'm going to check my email. Let me check Snapchat, you know. So he, Michael tried to pull over the car a few times, but the gunman, the gunman, uh, the, gun, the gunman changed his mind several times yeah. and ordered him to keep driving. Eventually, the car reached an area known as Dead Man's Hill, and the gunman told Michael to pull over into a layby, which is like a like a rest stop, but British. Now, was it Dead Man's Hill or was it Deadman's? We'll never it's, know. Oh, that's true. Was it Gunman's or Deadman's? We may never know. We'll Good never point, know, Johnny you Boy. Guys. Yeah, that's right. Well, Michael was spooked and tried to refuse, but the gunman threatened to shoot him, so he complied. Now, the gunman insisted he wanted to sleep, but felt it necessary to tie up Valerie and Michael first. 
He bound Valerie's hands with Michael's tie, then noticed a bag in the back of the car. He asked Michael to pass him the bag. As Michael bent down to do so, the gun went off and Michael was killed. His body fell into the back seat. And a few minutes later, he ordered Valerie to get into the back seat on top of the body of her dead lover. Ugh, I hate that. And it gets worse. Um, unfortunately, this guy also raped Valerie in the back of her car, then ordered her to remove Michael's body from the vehicle, get into the driver's seat, and show him how to drive the car. And it quickly became clear to Valerie that he didn't even know how to drive. Um. So... Well, remember, he didn't have his license. That's true. Yeah. He, you know, he kind of yeah. pretended to hot wheel, but he couldn't do it. Exactly. Um, and when he was unable to learn to drive in just those few minutes, it was probably a stick shift, which, take, which takes ages to learn to drive properly, by the way. He ordered Valerie to get back out of the car and go over to Michael's body. Now, Valerie begged the man not to kill her, but he took a one pound note from his pocket and yelled at her to take this, take the car, and go. By the way, a pound being, of course, the currency in, in Britain. Um, a one-pound note equal to a dollar, a, a dollar bill, essentially. Uh, take this and go, he says. But anyway, he then proceeded to shoot at her as she stood motionless next to Michael. Now, most of his bullets missed, but she was shot in the leg, at which time she collapsed down next to Michael and pretended to be dead until she heard her captor drive off poorly in the car now i would do this i would pretend totally. to be dead i yeah. would 100% hold my breath pretend to be dead i've thought about this yeah i feel yes. like we've all thought about that yes. i will be honest that is such a smart thing to do i would probably instinctively run i know that's probably not the right thing to do but just knowing me i would probably end up running now Valerie laid in the grass for several hours until she was found by a farmer just before 7 a.m. the following mm. morning and called for help. Now, remember, this guy's body that she loved was, you know, tragically Michael, right next yeah. to her. Yeah. The first police officer who arrived at the scene took Valerie's initial statement on a piece of paper and that was immediately lost and was never recovered. Cool. Sounds sounds like sounds Sweet. like a sounds like really good police police work there. Um, Valerie was taken to a hospital where she gave a second statement just before undergoing surgery. In the statement, Valerie told the police that the gunman had been extremely well-dressed in a three-piece suit and dress shoes, but had spoken um, about being on the run for the last four months. That's I, that's the first detail we're hearing, of, hearing about that. I mean, that seems... Yeah, he had know. said, I think, previously that, like, you know, he'd been... On the go, or I forget exactly what we were just saying. But in a but, three piece suit. But I in mean, a three piece suit, that's very weird and specific, especially given that what is the reasoning piece. for that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she also told them that he seemed to basically have no motive for this crime whatsoever. Remember, he was like not sure where to go. He wanted to take a nap and all this other stuff. Well, the following day on August 23rd, a woman named Audrey Willis was surprised and threatened by a gunman who matched the description given by Valerie and who claimed to be the quote-unquote A6 murderer. A6, that's interesting. Well, that was the highway that they were on, so maybe that's, right. you know, maybe that's his territory. Now, on August 24th, a gun matching the one described by both Valerie and Audrey was found under the backseat of a London bus. It was loaded but wiped of fingerprints. Like, 
this is such a crazy story. This is all, this is and it's all in, over the place. Yeah. I sort of say it's like so circuitous. We're just like going all over the place. Law enforcement, law enforcement issued a warning to boarding house, boarding houses, boarding house and hotel workers to keep an eye out for any suspicious guests. I mean, again, this guy's on the run, so it would make sense or allegedly. Now, one hotel reported a guest almost immediately who went by the name of Frederick Durant, who turned out to have the legal name Peter Alfin. You know, Peter had locked himself in his room for five days straight after the carjacking turned murder. When police picked up Peter for questioning, he claimed that he had spent the evening on August 22nd with his mother and the following evening in a different hotel called the Vienna. Peter's alibi checked out. He was released from custody. Now, Valerie was released from the hospital on August 29th. She was now paralyzed from the waist down as a result of the shooting. That's horrible. Which didn't seem to make sense because he was like, he gave her money, told her to take the car and go. And then he just shot her. She was like standing over Michael. Like, it's just like such weird details in all of this. Yeah, this guy sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the day she was released, she gave the police a more robust description of the gunman. Two days later, she returned to the station where she gave a completely different description of her attacker, mm-hmm. which is now you're not starting looking to think good for her. Yeah. What is what is the point here? What, where are we going with all these? I mean, maybe to, to that point, too, you know, like he's had his own mental issues. Maybe she's traumatized. Maybe she's recovering from God only knows what. I mean. Right, you like know, th- we don't know how how shock or yes. or tragedy or something affected her. Like yeah, yeah, that should yeah. be fair, but to change your description completely, it just like I sort of get timelines being messed up with descriptions of people. Yeah, descriptions I, I, are odd, especially when it starts with him having a three piece suit. You know, like what? Well, right, because that's very specific and also very odd. I mean, yeah. I don't think we've ever really heard about that. Now, on September seventh, another woman was attacked in her home by a gun, a home by a gunman claiming to be the A six murderer. On September 11th, an employee at the Vienna Hotel found two bullet casings in a guest bedroom. Jesus Christ, which wow. was the basement bedroom reported it to authorities, and the guest was asked to look at a photo lineup and picked up Peter Elfin as the guest who had most recently stayed in the room. Again, this is the guy whose alibi checked out, though. Right. Now, the bullet casings matched the bullets that killed Michael, shot Valerie, and were loaded into the gun found on the bus. Mm, that's not looking good, yeah. Well, police spoke to the hotel owner who stated that Peter Elfin had indeed stayed at the Vienna but claimed that he had been in a different room, room six, while a guest by the name of James Ryan had been assigned to the basement bedroom. Now, when police searched the hotel looking for more evidence, the hotel owner owner changed his story, now claiming that James Ryan and Peter Elfin had actually swapped rooms during the night. So Peter Elfin had been in the basement room where the bullets were found, and James Ryan had slept in room six. I mean, what is this, Clue? I mean, mean, there's so many different details and found by the by the staircase with the candlestick so, like, right. like why were, why are we on a london bus at this <laughs> point people the, at this point police were extremely suspicious and publicly named peter alfin as a, as suspected mm. to be the a6 murderer peter alfin immediately contacted the police and turned himself in for questioning which not something most guilty people would do. Yeah, I mean, you know? or or you think you're so fucking cocky and so fucking smart that you think that you can outwit them, that Ted too, Bundy yeah. style. But I don't know to call police Chris Watts style too, right? Chris Watts style to to call the police and turn yourself in for questioning. I mean, I well, don't know. Valerie was shown a suspect lineup and failed to pick Peter as her attacker. 
Peter was held as a suspect for four days, during which time he was recorded as saying, quote, there can't have been any fingerprints in the car, otherwise mine would have given me away, end quote. Police returned to question the hotel owner once again, and once again, he changed his story back to the original one, claiming that I mean, James Ryan was in the basement bedroom the whole time. Again, this sounds like clue. back and forth? Like, I get if you remember, like, I sort of understand switching it because you were like, oh, shit, that's right. They switched rooms. Right. Then why go back? That sounds like you're under, you're Some, being under duress or someone else is telling you to do this. That's what exactly, it says to me. Exactly. Well, anyway, the owner claimed that he lied because he believed Peter Alphon was a suspect in the, M, the M6 murders and wanted to the, to help police arrest him. Was this A6? Oh, was this A6 murders or those, what's, what's M6? I think it's A6. A6. Yeah, yeah, I think we got it. Sorry, that was a little mix up on our side there. But but yeah, nonetheless, it was just very, um, I don't know, everything's getting real sussy with these real details. Sus. It turned out that the man calling himself James Ryan was actually James Hanratty, who had been sentenced to serve another six years in prison for robbery and was on the run from the law. When he learned he was now heavily under suspicion for the murder, James phoned Scotland Yard himself and told police he had nothing to do with the crime and had only fled because he didn't have a credible alibi for the time of the crime. James was apprehended on October 11th. Well, that's just a shitty fucking excuse and something shitty to do. Don't run from the cops because you don't have an alibi. Now that's like double sus. Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. I mean, when people are panicking around crimes like this, nothing is going to ever make sense, but yeah. it's just still ridiculous. Valerie picked him out of a lineup as her attacker three days later after each potential match repeated the line, quote, be quiet, will you? I'm thinking, end quote, which presumably was connected to what was originally said to her. The, in the Cockney accent. In the, yeah, in the Cockney accent. On January 22nd, 1962, James was charged with Michael's murder. At trial, James's alibi was initially that he was 200 miles away in Liverpool at the time the murders took place, but oddly decided to change his defense halfway through the trial, claiming he was actually in Wales. Didn't he run because he didn't have an alibi? Isn't the alibi that he's 200 miles away in Liverpool and like someone maybe could have seen him? Like, Not very well thought through here. This was noted as extremely strange because at the time, there's virtually no forensic proof that James was ever present in the car and his initial alibi seemed good. The only physical evidence that the prosecution could present was that the blood sample found in the car matched the same very common blood type as James. They couldn't even prove James had ever been to the area where the murder took place. Right. And like very common. I'm sure I have it too because I'm a positive like. That's so common. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Uh, like, there's, and especially again, yeah. well, and also remember again where, uh, where we are in, in the timeline here in the 60s, mid 60s, right. I would imagine at this point, definitely DNA stuff was not a thing. There was no evidence. Uh, there's also no evidence to prove James knew either of the victims had any motive to commit the murder or any history of violence whatsoever. Furthermore, James was a known car thief and getaway driver, and according to Valerie, her ta- her attacker had no idea how to drive a car. So things are not adding up. Or at least not how to drive ways. stick shift car, which That's I imagine true. there were a lot of back in the 60s, because automatic right. really is only kind of a new thing. Yeah, well, James's true. first alibi was simple. He'd been staying with some friends in Liverpool, and there was indeed a small amount of evidence that he'd been there on the afternoon of the 22nd, although he couldn't prove he'd been there in the evening. 
But just before the defense began their arguments, James changed his mind. Oh, my God. This, beat- this episode. Yeah. And, and and told the court that he made. I love that we're like over the episode. We're like we're this kind episode, of over it. We're kind this of this episode. This. Yeah, James changed his mind <laughs> and told the court that he'd made up the Liverpool alibi and was actually in. Is it Ryle, Wales? I think Ryle. Yeah, Ryle in Wales. Now this yeah. required the defense team to pause and gather. Yeah, of course. Gather together evidence of this new alibi. They're Again, like, oh, what did alibi, he say? You'd have right, exactly. I'm like, yeah. so where is he now? Um, he's in, he's in the kitchen with the candlestick with Mr. Mustard seed. Like what <laughs> right, the fuck exactly. is going on? But what were you going to say? I interrupted you. You were saying that, you know, if it's an alibi, shouldn't there be plenty of evidence? If it's an alibi, well, yeah. it, or at least it, an alibi has just been like, I couldn't have done it because I was here. Right? right. Right. So even if you can't prove it, why change your alibi? Yeah. Once you change it, you just seem so fucking sus. Deceptive. Like, yeah. You're deceptive. Even if say like, oh, I was downstairs at the time and I couldn't prove it. Why would I change to be like, actually, no, I was down the street at the garage. It yeah. just feels like you're, it, again, it's circuitous. Now they claim that James had stolen a watch and wanted to sell it to his, um, to his, something in Ryle. He wanted to sell it to somebody in Ryle. Now he'd arrive there or something. Yes, something. He'd arrived there late on the evening of the 22nd and stayed at a boarding house near the train station. James provided a detailed description of the room. That's got to help at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Although he could have stayed there at any other time and just remembered a room. Okay. The defense team hired a private investigator to visit the boarding house in question and speak to the owner, Grace Jones. Who I don't think is the Grace Jones we all know, but potentially, potentially. We don't know. We have no proof. Yeah. Now, the boarding house and guest room matched James' description to the letter. And Grace Jones remembered James' stay at the house, but she couldn't remember the exact date of his visit, but knew it was sometime between August 19th and the 26th. Grace was asked to give her testimony in court, at which time the prosecution accused her of lying to get some publicity for her boarding house. I mean, having a potential murderer stay at your boarding house, I'm not sure that says, like, (laughs) let's go visit. But I I could be wrong. Now, Grace seemed to be a terrible bookkeeper, and virtually no information could be gleaned from her sparsely filled out guest registries. The prosecution did latch on to the fact that her books noted James's room as unoccupied on the 22nd and disregarded the handful of other hotel guests the defense brought in to testify to the fact that the entire boarding house, including James's supposed room, was filled that evening. Mm. When the jury finally left to deliberate, they returned empty handed six hours later to ask the judge to explain the definition of reasonable (laughs) doubt. I bet I bet they would. I mean, even during this case, I'm like. Nothing is reasonable about any of this. So how nothing's reasonable, possibly... but like because I don't have anything definitive, like then yeah. there is reasonable doubt. For sure, yeah. They then reconvened for three more the... hours before before returning with a unanimous guilty verdict, <laughs> at which time he was sentenced to death. If you are coming out and asking what reasonable doubt is, and then you're gonna come back with a guilty verdict, doesn't that interesting. Seem sussy? That's very sussy. I was gonna say, at least give them some kudos for ask, asking what reasonable doubt is. That means that they want to make sure that it's right, that they get this particular thing right. But then you sit, you know, that detail there. I, makes I guess it they were measuring whether or not the doubt that they had was considered reasonable. Right. But, right. and, but a unanimous guilty verdict and sentenced to death. That's shocking. Uh, yeah. After James's conviction, Peter Alphon wrote to the Daily Express stating his belief that James was innocent. And that he fully supported dismissal of his charges. Wow. A group calling themselves the A6 Defense Committee formed to try and gather as much evidence as possible to disprove James's guilt. Now, the group created a petition that garnered over 90,000 signatures protesting his execution 
Fuck yeah. Without social media to press that forward? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty big. James, is a, James appealed his conviction, but the appeal was dismissed. Shocking to me. In the meantime, Peter Alphen continued to confess to Michael's murder wow. to those closest to him, describing minute details of the locations and events of the evening in question. What's interesting, though, is that Peter's the one actually saying that James is innocent. Right. You'd think that he would want the other guy to take the fall, but he's not. He's like, no, this guy's fucking innocent. I did it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so weird. Yeah. Peter wrote to the police telling them, I killed Greg, Greg Stern. The letter was seemingly ignored. He then began making repeated threatening phone calls to his own lawyer, Charles France, and sending numerous letters that stated things like, if Hanratty dies, you die. Wow. Charles France killed himself two mm. weeks before James's execution date. Curious if that had some relation. As James's mm -hmm. execution date grew closer, Peter seemed to get more and more agitated. James was unfortunately hanged on April 4th, 1962, claiming his own innocence until the moment he died. The A6 Defense Committee kept working in the hopes of clearing his name after his death. Wow. Again, a little bit of a different time, I think, now. Yeah. What is it, 60 years later? I think people would be a little bit... We put people... We put um, sentence people to death a lot less now. Some states have obviously abolished it, and I think... Uh, it doesn't happen as quickly. Like he was, he was hanged on 1962 when he was sentenced, like basically that same year. Um, it takes years and years and years, but yeah, that's just super tragic. Like also, even if he did do it, yeah, we don't even know from the details we're saying you and but, I have reasonable doubt all over this shit. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I'm like, we're, we're, was the United States, and this is obviously in, in Britain, but was Britain hanging people in 62? And like, were Maybe, we yeah. doing that? I, I we, we should look that oh, up. Oh, yeah. Too. We've been hanging people for... Hanging? We, well, we... Ugh. I mean, I, I you know, people... I mean, honestly, like, I don't know if you heard about a few weeks ago, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but the guy that they um, uh, put to death a couple weeks ago, but that it didn't take, and the guy... They tried oh, to kill him two that. years ago, and it didn't work. The oh, poison didn't work, that. and then they tried it again, and it didn't work. And oh, I get... People trying to, uh, if you're going to kill someone, make sure you know how do to do it in a way it, that is right. And I believe in firing lines, you know, do it quick and swiftly. I think we do that to make the executioner feel better and as opposed to someone else who's suffering. And so I just have a lot of different like moral qualms about this. I'm going to look yeah. this up while you. Yeah, see, when, when the hanging stuff, that's kind of shocking to me. Even even for Britain. But anyway, on, on August 22nd, 1962, Peter Alphon visited James's family and offered to financially compensate them for James's death. James's mother threw him out of the house. Peter paid her another visit the following day and physically assaulted her. I mean, this is like worst case scenario here. Um, side note. Mm-hmm. Um most states that executed inmates primarily by hanging prior to this 1976 ruling implemented lethal injection instead. Delaware's Billy Bailey was the last criminal to be hanged in the United States, which was in 1996. Wow, that is shocking. I know. I can't believe we were still doing that. Interesting. Yeah, January 25th, 1996 in Delaware. Yikes. I hate to hear that. That's yeah. just so, that sounds just inhumane to me personally. But anyway, yeah. by 1968, the A6 Defense Committee had gathered uh, together six very solid witnesses who were all willing to testify that they had seen James in Ryle on the 22nd of August, including the, uh, the fiance who admitted to buying the stolen watch. Eventually, the committee caught wind of Peter Alphonse's continuing confessions to the murder and were able to piece together a story that they believed close to accurate. 
Peter Alphon had been paid had been paid five thousand great 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 British pounds, excuse me, to put an end to Michael and Valerie's life. He bought a gun and hijacked their car, claiming he'd given Michael two chances to get away, but that he kept coming back for Valerie. Michael was killed when the gun went off by accident. Michael gave the gun to his lawyer, Charles France, who we had mentioned previously, whose daughter had been dating James Hanratty. Oh, that's interesting. There we go. Charles planted the gun under the bus seat and the bullet casings in James's hotel room. The committee also noted that Peter Alfron grew up uh, with a Cockney accent, is a bad driver, and never provided the police a reasonable alibi. Also, he continually confessed to the murder, which we you know just about. this also thing. Just yeah, just also another a little, little detail. asterisk, like side note that by the way, he's admitting to it. Yeah, exactly. They also obtained back records showing a five thousand great Great British pound payment into Peter's bank account around the time of the murder. Now, listen, if imagine if they could get that, you know, all those years ago. Um, but anyway. I wonder who paid. Mm-hmm. The five thousand pounds, though. Yeah, where did now, that one come from? It, yeah, maybe because Michael was having an affair. Maybe it was the wife. I don't know. Yeah. Now, in nineteen ninety one, several pieces of physical evidence from the carjacking were found. This is decades later. Now they'd been misplaced by police, of course, and right. were now able to be tested again against DNA given by James's family. But the results were found to be inconclusive. In two thousand one, James's body was exhumed and his DNA was taken to compare to the rediscovered evidence. Mucus found on the handkerchief that was wrapped around the gun found on the bus and semen found on the other underwear Valerie wore on the night of the attack. Both mm. DNA samples were a match to the DNA taken from James's exhumed body. Wow. That's pretty big. Now, at a hearing yeah. following the testing, the family's lawyer suggested that the evidence may have been contaminated during the decades it was lost. Mm. That's possible. Why would Peter confess to this, though? That's what's so fucking confusing. This is confusing. so weird, yeah. However, the judge declared that the DNA match itself was certain proof of guilt. James's family, as well as his defense committee, continued to contest the guilt, his guilt in the crime. Yeah. Valerie, unfortunately, passed away in 2016. And in 2022, former police officer turned writer Paul Stickler released The Long Silence, the story of Valerie's ordeal. What uh, you a know, weird case. Oh, my God. DNA, goodness. you know, I mean, if they're taking, you know, the semen that's been found there and all that stuff, like, you know, just because you find DNA, it doesn't necessarily prove guilt. But at the same time, yeah. why would there's so many like why would Peter then confess to this? Like, I don't, I don't get that. Why would he continue that? The only thing that comes to mind is maybe there was some sort of scenario where that somebody was trying to pressure him into taking the fall, and if he didn't, like maybe his family was going to be murdered or whatever else could potentially happen. Well, or his lawyer. Yeah, but right. The lawyer who committed suicide. You know, before James was hanged and he was dating James's, right. his daughter was dating James. So maybe the daughter like forced the lawyer to put it on Peter. But then why would Peter continue to confess? And why would the yeah. lawyer kill himself before James was hanged? Like, it's, it's so a comp- It's a very complicated case. And ugh, let us and- know what you think if you have reasonable doubt in this case yeah. based on what we said at Carpe Darren at Jay Thrasher. But like, this one is like <laughs> mind numbing. Very mind numbing. In fact, I want to kind of listen to this episode back and maybe hear, you know, my own what some things that I may have missed in my own thoughts here. But very interesting nonetheless. Uh, Let's get to listener shout outs now as we wrap up this episode. And like Darren said, please do let us know on Patreon and our Facebook group. You can hit us up anywhere else. 
Um, by the way, we recently asked you guys where you listen to the show. I was yes. very curious about this. Me too. Because, you know, I found myself listening to a podcast recently. I had mentioned it on a recent episode of NMR um, called Lost Culturistas featuring Bo and Yang and Matt, Ro- Matt Rogers, who I really love. And I hadn't, I don't ever really listen to podcasts in my car. I'm never usually driving that type of distance where that makes the most sense. But I just had, I was curious. And some of you, a lot of you actually had said that you clean while listening, including Claudia, Caitlin, Brittany. So shout out to you guys and many more of you who had said that you had cleaned. Darren, there was some other locations. Others said while you're walking the dog, including Linda and Beth, I listen to podcasts when I'm taking walks. I mean, I kind of do it at any, if I'm getting ready or something that I can just like have it on the background where my hands yeah. are, that's usually where I listen to it. So it kind of makes sense. Like cleaning would make sense. I listen to podcasts at the gym. I'm a- I'm actually listening to way more podcasts than I do music at the gym. Yeah. I'm the same way. Yeah. Which is weird because you'd think like music would like pump well, you up. When I'm on the the equipment at the gym, I like to have my iPad or phone with me. I know I'd bring my iPad to the gym, but I like to watch stuff. So I'm kind of listening. And sometimes well, that that's podcasts. Sense, yeah, sometimes that that's podcasts. Because well, you're working out. You're not just sitting there. It's not like yeah, you I'm go to the something. gym to go watch friends. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, well, like we said at the top of this episode, we've got some exciting announcements regarding regarding Patreon coming very soon. So be in the know and be there when they happen. And you can join for as little as five bucks a month. And actually, it's even cheaper if you subscribe annually, you guys. So your support on Patreon goes directly to our show and the production and paying off some of our bills like Zoom. We got to pay for this Zoom thing so we can record this for you guys. Um, so you are really making the show happen. And if you have already uh, subscribed and joined us, thank you so much. We Darren, where can, they, where can they find that? Yeah, check out patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed or click the link in our show notes. We make it so easy for you. Now we have new sign offs, of course, after last week's episode specifically. I might change mine every episode, but I'm for for this one I'm gonna stick to it, which is if you didn't listen to it, you need to go back and listen to last week's episode. I'm just gonna say check your mushrooms. Okay, guys. And- Mine is check your pits, especially if you have a penis. Okay. And nobody knows what that yeah. means. And we'll see you guys. You next. don't need to. All right. See you, ne- out, John. <laughs> see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.